And if we're ever like a TV performance where we have more than they're like, all right, we're going to play it three times and the best take wins. I'm like, I'm like, oh, dude, the first is the best you're going to get. Like, trust me, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> the History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. Less than two years ago, Portugal the Man kicked the door down and crashed the party that was mainstream music when they released their masterpiece, Woodstock. The album featured the Grammy award-winning single, Feel It Still, a song that, well, we're still feeling. How do you follow that up is the question. Well, you work with Weird Al Yankovic and appearing on the History of Alternative podcast, more importantly. Hey, I'm John Manley, and that's avid Kool-Aid fan, James Van Osdell. And this week's episode is sponsored by Wintrust. Go to Wintrust.com for locations and information. We have got a very fun show today. Zach Carruthers from Portugal the Man is with us. And since this is a weekly look into alternative history, uh, we're going to talk about your activism in music and the music that set your band on a path to become a great band in your own rights. Uh, let's start there. What was the first concert you ever went to? Ooh, I went to Primus back in 1995. They came to Anchorage, Alaska, and it changed my life for sure. Um, being a bassist, I wasn't a bassist then, but obviously uh, Les Claypool's the best in the world, and he arguably, and uh, yeah, it's, it was pretty crazy. I, I fell in love with a girl that I just saw there. Uh, I moshed. My mom dropped me and my friend off and picked me up. My little brother, who was, you know, God, like 11 or something. <laughs> I can't believe she let me do that. I was like, yeah, my other like, uh, you know, but they always encouraged music. And yeah, Primus, it was unbelievable. Um, it was, yeah, it changed my life. And years later, we got the tour with Primus and uh, still buds with a couple of those guys today. Um, yeah, huge influence. They just, uh, they prove, yeah, just thinking outside the box. They're one of those bands that can do whatever the hell they want. And that was the thing that really inspired me. It's just like, instead of being cool or being whatever, it's like, I'm going to write songs about fishing and be weird. And I'm like, that's fantastic, man. Yeah, throughout the 90s, when you'd hear Primus songs on the radio, you'd think, well, anyone can get on the radio with a wild idea. When you heard exactly. Jerry's a race car driver or Winona's Big Brown totally. Beaver, you're like, how do, that's amazing. That's so cool it, it was almost anarchistic to hear that kind of stuff on the air it was you know how so punk rock winona's big round beaver how big that song was it's massive with that then they had the video with the uh the dural cell battery kind of phone people right yeah, yeah yeah it was yeah it was so good and uh yeah that guitar solo won a bunch of awards i remember like trying to learn it <laughs> reading the tabs in guitar world or something <laughs> in my mom's basement so we're recording the podcast in Chicago, and mm. honestly, my my knowledge of Alaska is so limited. It it, it really comes down to thirty days of night, and Sarah yeah. Palin, <laughs> yeah, uh, who who you and went Portugal to war the man, with, and that's about it. And yeah. Portugal, the man, yeah. <laughs> uh, and we'll get we'll get to the fight with Sarah Palin uh, certainly before we wrap up. But growing up in Alaska, what was your source for music discovery? Like, how how did you get turned on to cool music? Was it friends? Was it magazines? How did you, how did you discover stuff? Um, it was a lot of like people's cousins coming up to visit from California and stuff like that. I would go down to Seattle. My grandparents lived down there and I would go to Tower Records and uh, or just some of the small record shops. And we actually had a pretty decent mom and pop shop in Wasilla um, that looking back, I, I'm like, wow, that is that is really good. Um, I have to 
give most of the credit to my a couple of my older cousins who they were the first people to show me like rage against the machine the beastie boys and um and then i found like the real thing that cracked it open was i found nirvana and that that was the first thing i found on my own and that was totally mine and i just went all in and that's what made me pick up a guitar in the first place um it seemed so it wasn't it wasn't hard it was pretty simple music i would hear like a guitar lead or something and instead of like i was always i was listening to pink floyd and led zeppelin and the beatles and stuff i was like i'm like all right i'm never gonna be able to play like jimmy page so why bother but i heard cobain play <clears throat> and it was so amazing it hit me so deep but it wasn't crazy technical it was just all mood and that was the first time i was like oh maybe i can play something that means something and uh and so yeah and then besides that <coughs> excuse me um skate and snowboard videos <coughs> sorry i got a frog in my throat or something uh um skate and snowboard videos were massive for us up there that was the youtube that was the uh that was the thing so i i give like all the credit to me digging down and finding like really solid metal and punk rock like skate movies and, and snowboard videos made me like really dig under the skin of the mainstream and uh we actually had a really good college stage we still do up there that plays very just weird stuff they go for like real deep cuts and interesting things so as isolated as we are up there we actually had like some really cool things and my parents had a great record collection so did john's and uh our singers and yeah it's just you get what you can so you're you're listening to nirvana you're playing tony hawk pro skater on your playstation and yeah. <laughs> you decide to start a band like what was the um what was the flashpoint for the moment where you went from uh learning tab to actually learning kind of chord progressions and going oh i'm gonna be in a i'm gonna i want to try to do this yeah uh it was actually it was a guy named Vinny Papsidora who was, I started a top 10 name of all time, band. by the way. That I know, right, dude. <laughs> he is awesome. I haven't seen him in forever. He kind of just moved out to the middle of the woods. Um, this really beautiful girl moved up to our hometown mm. and he met her. They like, they just like kind of, they had a thing, they got married and had kids and just moved out to the woods. And I haven't seen him in like 20 years, probably. Um, <clears throat> I still talk to his brother every now and then. And, uh, and I do have to tell him like Vinny made me like pushed me to do it. He was just like, Hey dude, you have a guitar. He just wanted to play drums. And, and he kind of like pushed me into, he was a little bit older and he was cool and a really good fighter, really good skater. And he was just like a cool guy. And he pushed me into like writing songs and playing it. I've always kind of had to have somebody kind of like push me to do things. I'll have ideas, but I'm scared to give anything out to the world. And so John's a big one for that, you know? Um, and yeah, but yeah, Vinny Papsidora made me start uh, my first band. We were called the Dependable Letdowns. We did about half covers and half terrible originals. And we played like, you know, skate park benefits or house parties or in at our school. We I played my junior prom. Like uh, we got the cord plugged for, you know, <laughs> I mean, every time I played any sort of school thing, they literally just like yanked the cord out because we did something to what what was the go to cover? What was the go to cover? Every high school, well, like, thing, by the way, killing has in the name, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. We did 
<laughs> yeah, we did. We did like Rage Against the Machine, Dead Kennedys, Pantera, Sepultura, um, uh, bunch of like like some Dick Dale, some Agent Orange, and uh, so that that kind of stuff. And uh, and then yes, yeah, so we did terrible covers, and then we just did uh, far worse originals. <laughs> But I it was fun, man. Cool. I thought I was when I learned like the when you learn the riff to killing a name of like you instantly oh, feel like fifteen to twenty percent cooler than you were thirty oh, for seconds sure. before you got it. Yeah. And then you'd play you it walk, for your friends. You walk down like, the street a little different. Yeah, you know? yeah right. <laughs> a little swagger. A little Tom yeah, totally. you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no. It was funny. I jumped up on stage with Tom. Uh he came through on his uh for his solo tour, which was amazing. Um it was rad. And like John had worked with him. We did a song on his, on his album, but at the end he just did killing in the name, but he just had a bunch of people come up on stage and just yell. There's no mics. It's just everybody yelling and he's just playing. And I was like, you know, it was with all the crowd stuff. I'm just like, Oh hell no. Like I'm absolutely going up there. And I was friends with a couple of guys in his, uh, in his crew and we're buds with Tom, but I'm like, I know you do this with the fans, but as a fan, I'm like, I'm going up there and screaming my ass off for sure. And it was amazing. I felt like a 15-year-old kid. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, he did. I did one with him, uh, the Seattle show with Tom. I hosted it because it, like it was like an inside the actor's studio kind of thing. And then he plays songs off his new record. And it was yeah. so bizarre because at the end, um, if you're listening and, and didn't get to go to one of these shows, he'd play a song off the record and kind of go away and then he'd come back out and he'd play another one and then he'd go away and while he's doing this like i'm backstage so he would go upstage play a song come back downstairs and like we would just chat and then he'd be like hold on one second and they'd run back up and like <laughs> front sell you know killing in the name of and then he'd come back down and it's like you could hear people like freaking out in the background and then he would just come down and like take a shot and like yeah you know, chat and i always uh i'm still mad at him because i i was a huge rage fan i think you were too like uh as a kid oh, yeah. and um i i couldn't help myself and i was like hey dude i gotta ask this because i've been a fan since i was like 13 is there any way you guys ever get back together and he looked me dead in the eye and was like zach won't do it i call him every day yeah. he won't do it and then a month later, they announced that they were playing Coachella and on all of this. And I was like, son of a bitch, you lied right <laughs> to my face. <laughs> I do. He kind of did that. He wouldn't, because uh, we had heard rumors about their last tour that got canceled. And it sucked. Like me and John, and I, I talked to him, like we had like 15 tickets. We were going to fly to El Paso for the first show. And uh, um, yeah, I was so, I was so bummed about that. Like, yeah, can't wait. They're, the, they're just the best band, man. Did you ever get to see them before? Um, have you seen them in the past? I've only seen one show. I saw when they got back together for Coachella back in like 08. And uh, I, we were on tour. I canceled shows way ahead of time. We had some shows booked, but it hadn't been announced yet. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Rage is headlining Coachella. I can't make this. And I drove, and all my guys drove 30 hours. We were like on the other side of the country. And we drove to Coachella. My mom flew down. She loves Rage. Uh, my brother drove down from Washington. And we had kind of a family reunion at Rage Against the Machine. It was incredible. <laughs> we That's the only time we've ever seen a Sizzler. <laughs> yeah. Your reunion's way better. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I got a pretty cool family. They're all right. Um, JVO, are you a Rage guy? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, did you have, like, I suppose when they were, when they really broke out, you were just getting started at KQX, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember when we got the single for Bulls on Parade. I remember seeing them at uh, the Tibetan Freedom Show at Alpine. Uh, oh, whoa. I was at that show. Yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Man. It was The Roots. Live played that one. It was a totally eclectic and cool lineup. But yeah, I mean, cool. Rage was just, they were just the best. It was just the best, yeah. And nobody, nobody can really do it. Like, if you cover Rage, it's like, it's so hard. We do a lot of covers now on our set, and we we're always like, God, this would just be so good for a Rage cover. And we're just like, God, we just can't do it, man. It's like, it's just different. It just comes off different. And like, and I know it. That's like, I don't know cover songs. Like, I was never really a cover guy. Like, a few in high school. Like, now I don't learn songs really. And, uh, but I'm like, Rage. I'm like, I know a lot of Rage. I had all the, like, the tab books and stuff like yeah. that. I was like, I had all of them. Still do. Do you remember, like, trying to, like, I remember, like, trying to play guitar like Tom Morello. And there was, like, this is the early days of the internet. So you couldn't just go to, like, tabworld.com or yeah. whatever. And there were all those, like, bullcrap, uh like urban legends like oh he used a monkey wrench to play Judah, <laughs> rolling yeah. down rodeo thing you got to use a monkey wrench and it was like yeah. i was sitting in my basement with my you know 80 dollar fender jag and my yeah. crappy tv <laughs> and it was like i'm hammering this wrench going this doesn't sound anything <laughs> like bulls on i know man i just i and i didn't know much about it. like i didn't have access to many effects and stuff and so i just hear him and i knew it was all guitar i'm just like how the shit does he do this? Like, I don't, I just don't get it. It's another one of those things like Primus that just like, that really opened up. Um, there's just a few moments that have really just like kind of opened up my eyes to realize that there are no rules. I can kind of do whatever you want. There's a couple silly ones. You know the skate company toy machine? They're still around. They're still huge. They're amazing. Uh, Ed Templeton used to do a lot of artwork and uh, Cleon Peterson was a creative designer, but they just had this shirt that was so rad. It was knuckle tattoos and one said toy and the other said machine. So one had three letters. It was like this one had three letters, one had like nine. <laughs> and then I, and I just remember seeing that shirt. And I'm like, Oh, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to follow any rules. You can just do whatever you want. And yeah, it's weird. Something like a t-shirt just changed my life. It taught you to think outside the knuckles. Yeah, exactly. It's nice. like, man, you can squeeze whatever you want in there. Just like, uh, as long as you do it with, uh, just as long as you pretend like you know what you're doing, which is still what I do. Swagger is so important to rock. Absolutely. And yeah, totally. Because it's not perfect music. John always has that thing. He like, he hits wrong notes constantly. And our rule is <laughs> if you just like, you just got to hit it twice. And then it just sounds like it's on purpose. And then, then anybody who's listening is like, oh, does he just know something that I don't know? It's a trick. If you do something wrong, just do it twice. And then it's right. What people listening didn't get to see as you said that was you saying he hits the wrong notes constantly as you rolled your eyes. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> he doesn't, he, he's hilarious. He doesn't, he, he doesn't like to practice. I mean, we just don't practice very much. We all enjoy practice, but he just can't play a song. He'll come to practice for like to jam and to like write jams and stuff like that. But like playing a song twice in a row, no. And if we're ever like a TV performance where we have more than, they're like, all right, we're going to play it three times and the best take wins. I'm like, I'm like, oh, dude, the first is the best you're going to get. Like, trust me, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and dude is super creative. 
uh, super smart, a lot of things, but they like, he just, he, he's got a bad memory about things like lyrics and like where he left his wallet. But if you like say something stupid, he'll remember it for the rest of your life. <laughs> selective genius. <laughs> exactly. Selective genius. Totally. <laughs> so 15 years ago, you put out waiter, you vultures. Does that seem like forever ago or does it seem like only yeah. yesterday? Nah, it does. It seems like a long time ago. Um, it's weird. Time has um, vastly changed in the last year or so or a couple of years. It's like things are all weird. So I'm not sure. Yeah, it, it does seem like a long time ago, though. We were just babies. We had no idea what we we're doing. It's funny. I, I just listened to that record recently. Um, and uh, it's it's just hilarious. And, and a lot of people... It's really funny because it's like, it's very proggy. It's very experimental. What's funny about prog and experimental is that a lot of people say like, oh, I liked your old stuff when you just like would change keys and change time signatures out of nowhere. I'm like, we didn't know how to write a transition. We had no clue what we were doing. None of that was on purpose. That's and that's mean. what so much of that stuff is, is that writing a cohesive song is so much harder than just like, yeah, if I just feel like doing this, just stop and go into something else. I'm like, that's the easiest thing in the world to do. You just do it. But like trying to get there through melody and rhyme and reason and, and kind of going there smoothly and telling a cohesive story is so much harder. And so it is really funny when everybody says that they're like, like we've dumbed down our music. I'm like, no, 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 no. Our older music was so much more dumb. It just... I still like it. I still think like we had a lot of really good things. There was just like, I listened to it. It's just, yeah, it's always kind of cringy. I'm like, God, why did we do that? Like, I, I know, so, I like know how to do things so much better now. And, but that, but that's the journey. I mean, it's all, every album we, we put out is just like, just graduate another grade in school and you go in with a producer and you, and you like, you, you write and you learn and every album we just we just learn a ton of stuff and i can see it looking back on things and was like oh this is when we were just kind of figuring out what we wanted to do the next one's like all right we started jamming that's what just came out the next one we learned major chords and like i just see like we learned something it's like it's like very clear just like on a bookshelf i see it now but uh but it's pretty funny yeah yeah we've been a band for a long time so going back to that period, what, what was the expectation? Were you thinking, eh, we're a bunch of friends playing music. We'll see how this works out. Could you ever have imagined yourself 15 years later still doing this in this band or moving this band forward? I mean, yeah, I knew I'd probably always still be playing with these guys until I died. Um, I didn't think we'd be doing it professionally. Um, I didn't think we'd, we'd be big. I definitely think, didn't think anything like Feel It Still would happen. Um, but honestly, I think the reason that we didn't have any expectations was what kept us going. We were just hungry for travel and the world. We, we grew up in Alaska and it's very isolated, but like very special. So we love the place that we're from, but we did want to go out and see the world. And we moved down to Portland and we just got like, we just got thrown into this like rad music scene. And there was just every night there was a show for like three bucks, five bucks, some band I'd never heard of from a town I've never heard of came and they were good. And then they just like hopped in their van and went. And I was, and I was like, wait, you don't need stage lights or Learjets or any of this shit. You can just go on tour. I'm like that sounds rad. I just want to go on 
road trips. And so we did. And that was, yeah, it was, it was, it was funny. Like a lot of people like have something like people get into the music business for money, which is hilarious these days. Um, but then it was like, literally we realized that you don't need money to go on a tour. And that's what drew us in. We're like, Oh, dope. And you can maybe get like on a good night, you can get a large pepperoni pizza out of it. Cool. I'm like, yeah, just playing for peanuts and beer. Like, awesome. I'll do it. And we made a lot of friends. We just went out there and we saw some shit. Um, our first tour was real rough. We, um, we had a, we bought a rice cooker from Salvation Army. We couldn't even afford a new rice cooker, like a five pound bag of rice that was in a garbage bag, like strapped to the roof of our minivan where we didn't have a trailer. And so we had all our gear in there. And so the three people in the back were, we made it like flat ish and it was so close to the ceiling. Our faces were like, you couldn't even lift your head up to read a book. So we just drove in that thing and then we'd stop to eat. We literally just pull into rest stops on the side of the freeway, unplug the soda machine, plug in our rice cooker, do the dishes in the bathroom. We had our per diem or not even per diem, but our, our hot meal budget was $1 a week. One day a week, we went and got a dollar item at a fast food place. Sucked. <laughs> but it was so much fun. And uh, we did, when you're broke and just out somewhere where you don't know, you get into trouble and you find like really wholesome, cute things to do. And you just are curious. And uh, we're just like puppies running around and uh, meeting people and learning things and just like sniffing up every bit of knowledge that we could. And uh, it was fun, man. A lot of fun times. So you're bouncing around. You guys are kind of doing your own thing. And it kind of seems like you're kind of deconstructing the myths of the music industry where it's, I feel like everything seemed completely unattainable and then you kind of stick your nose in it and you're like, Oh, I can do this or, Oh, I can go on tour. Yeah. So as yeah. you go through this and you start to realize like, Oh man, you know, maybe we're not just a, a van band anymore. Maybe we're getting close to being a bus band, right? You're, you're mm -hmm. getting to that level and you start to work on your last record. You get hooked up with Mike D now. Yeah. I'm a massive BC Boys fan, so Same. I don't even know how you would address Mike D, let alone have him <laughs> produce your records. What was it like working with him? And then what was it like to like get to a place where you go, this isn't really working out? How does that even happen? It was really awkward and weird. I mean, meeting him for the first time, I've, I've, I've got to meet a lot of cool people and a lot of people that I'm like, big fan of and respect the ton. And there's only been a couple of times where I was like really nervous. Weird Al was definitely one. Sure. Um, and then Mike D was another one for sure. Uh, we went to meet him and we were like, we we're going to the dungeon. We we're going to like their, the BC studio in New York. And we just had a day off in New York and we had kind of been talking to him about doing some remix stuff. And he's like, Hey, do you guys want to come over and check out the studio? And I was like, oh, yeah. And so we went over there and it was just like, it was crazy walking through is exactly what you would want it to be. Their studio was like nothing nice. It was all just like, just like shitty pedals and like toy instruments. And I was like, I was asking questions about things and like, and it was super heavy, you know, like playing, like we started jamming and stuff. And I'm like, you know, playing on MCA's bass and stuff. It was crazy. Um, 
but like um, I was asking about like this certain like distortion they always have. I'm like, dude, I always try to get that. Like we can never quite get it. What do you do? He's like, oh, it's like a karaoke toy thing that has like a filter on it. It was like, I got it at the, you know, like Toys R Us. I was like, oh my God. It's like, and he's like, here, this is it. I was like, so this is the bullshit mic that's made out of plastic. He's like, yeah, that's the one. I'm like, oh my God. And, uh, and it was, it was just so fun. Once again, they're just, they're the kind of people that, that once again, just like, like get out of the box, get out of your head. You know, you don't need nice, you don't need nice things. You don't need, um, yeah, you just, you just need an idea. And, you know, when we were in like working with him and, and recording with him just taught us so much about creativity. When we were, we wrote some of the best lyrics that we ever had, I think ever when we were out, we were out in Malibu, we were staying with at Mike's house and we were working at, uh, or, or at Shangri-La and we're just like way out of our means, like way beyond our means. I mean, I'm sleeping in the same room that like Kim and Kanye sleep in and we're at this beautiful place in, in, uh, in Malibu. And it was, it was really weird. And, but something wasn't right. And I think we just got, we had too much of the nice life. I think we were just like, we had too much sunshine and we were drinking like green smoothies every day. And we had, there was a lot of, um, super nice the staff there's just so cool running to get anything that we wanted and like like we weren't struggling and i think that was really hard in our in our studio session when things get too nice we get a little too comfortable and we don't want to finish anything and so yeah something just happened where it wasn't it wasn't working out but there's still like so much good material in there it just it also wasn't the right time we were just like we always have to have our album placed with like our spot in the world. And it just like, it wasn't lining up then. And maybe it will someday. It's like, we got a lot of really cool songs in there, but, and that's what's so hard about this one. We're, we've been working on an album for a while and we're, um, we were almost done when COVID hit. We always like, we, we throw away all the lyrics unless they're like, you know, some super rad, I don't know, but we generally, we redo all the lyrics like two weeks before we're done. And so we were there and that's when like COVID hit and, you know, crazy political things and then right wing, left wing militias fighting each other. Like we almost, we the world is moving too fast. We didn't know what to write about. You know, one day there's murder hornets next day. There's like, you know, other like Portland's burning down. Like it's just absolutely crazy. And so we don't know like, Oh my God, like, cause we write this and then we have to press vinyl and four months later it comes out. Like we have no idea what the world's going to be like in four months. So how can we like put anything down that's permanent? And it, we, then we just like got into our heads and like, you know, rethought the whole album. And so that's what we're in the middle of right now. So that was an incredibly long answer. That's an incredibly good answer. That's what we're looking for. So you realize working with Mike D that maybe this is all a little too uh, shiny and polished for Portugal, the man. But then you go and write Feel It Still, which is, I mean, the shiniest and, and most polished thing that you've ever done and becomes a massive hit. Totally, you yeah. Like, it's huge. So yeah. reading into, so going from that into what you're working on now, knowing that kind of comfort is uncomfortable for you guys, mm-hmm. was it hard or did you find it hard to get back in the studio and go, um, that's the past. This is what we do next. And there isn't 
this gravity of that song or was there a gravity to the success of that last record and how do you make your peace with that and move forward was that a difficult like time period there like a transition or how did yeah, that go for sure I mean, we had a we had we had some big shoes to fill um but it also kind of took off a lot of pressure because it got so big that we knew like we couldn't do that again like that was just a fluke we had like it was like number one in Russia. I'm like, I was like, there's, it was almost so big that it's like, well, we can all safely say that that's never going to happen again. So Atlantic records, like well, you're not going to get that. And I, was we say, did, I, can, I can see your, your record rep in my head. Like, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah totally. It's just like, you're not going to get another feel still. Sorry. We're going to do something rap. Like I, I'm like, I fully think we can do something better. Um, I don't know. It's just like one of those things just that it, it really just went and didn't stop. And we didn't expect that. We knew it was a good song. Like we're no dummies, but I thought it was like, I was like, Oh, this is going to be really good. Like this will totally be like a hit on alternative radio. I had no idea it was going to go like as huge as it did. I was crazy. Um, and so now, but honestly, we've learned a lot on that journey. We got to meet a lot of really cool people. A lot of doors open for us. We got to hang out with like really cool writers, some really amazing people. And we just got to go to a lot of new places. And so we got a lot of fresh inspiration. And we ended up uh, going back in the studio with Jeff Basker, who is just a monster musician, incredible songwriter, um, and just really really smart and very interesting and just like a caliber that uh, just, just something different that we had never had before. And we, we loved it. Um, again, it was a little comfortable and the Mike D stuff, it wasn't, the music wasn't polished. Honestly, the music was like out there, man. It was like so out there that it was like, we're like, I don't even know what to do with this. Cause he got us to be just so creative. It was definitely not polished. Just the life that we were living in the studios that we were in, that was too right. polished. Uh, the music wasn't, it was, it's psycho. It's really fun. I just like, we almost don't know what to do with it. It's so weird. And uh, I want to put it out though. Cause it's like, it's just fun. Um, and I like seeing, I like seeing people's unfinished work. I like hearing demos. I like seeing sketches from artists. You know, everybody gets to see the masterpiece, but I kind of like the process. That's why I do what I do. I'm, I'm interested in the process and everything that goes into it. And yeah, the, the, you know, it's not the destination, it's the journey. And that's, that's what I'm all about. So, um, but yeah, this, uh, this time recording with Jeff Basker and we've, we've, you know, we brought in some songwriters that we're trying to work with. And every time we do, it's like, it's really cool. And we learn a lot. We get to hang out with Paul Williams and he wrote, he wrote lyrics with us on, uh, on who's going to stop me. And that guy is just a magical person um we've started a foundation we've been just like had amazing experiences and so we got a lot of stuff going on in our heads and just trying to like figure it out and organize it and uh and process it before we can really you know exhale out into something that we want to say you mentioned paul williams i, I want to talk about that song because he wrote rainbow connection he wrote all that yeah. great muppet stuff i mean that's yeah between working with him and weird al i mean like you're scratching an itch that your, your childhood self could never imagine you doing. Exactly. And that's, and that's what we're kind of going for. We're just like, 
what would be our dream and just going for it. And I know a lot of people would love to, like at this point, just be like, oh, I want to work with Pharrell or like, and if you're listening, Pharrell, I totally do want to work with you. Uh, you're amazing. But it's like, but instead of that, like, like dig, dig deep, like what's real, man, like the Muppets, that's real. Like Mr. Rogers neighborhood. That's like, that is the thing that like, and that's that connection with, um, with everything and his songs. And just as a person, he's just so magical. And that story was amazing. He just, we were at an event in, um, during the Grammy week. And, uh, and it was funny. We saw Paul Williams. We were all super excited. We're like, Oh shit, it's Paul Williams. So like, uh, our keyboard player, uh, took a picture with him and, and he's like, he's very into social media. Like if you, if you tag Paul Williams, he'll like write you back or comment on it. And we, we posted it and he just wrote, was like, Hey, nice meeting you guys. Like, let's write music sometime. We're like, sure. And he was like, how about next week? <laughs> I'm like, all right. And he's like, I love Portland. I haven't been there in like 20 years. Maybe I'll come up. And so me and John just picked him up from the airport uh, in our shitty tour van that we used to live in. And we were writing lyrics like fresh out before we even like pulled out of the airport. We started just like talking and telling stories. And we just started writing lyrics all the way to the studio. And he's just, he's just a true poet. He says things that are so real and he's got this voice that's just uh, incredibly deep and soulful and like it is insane dude. The, and he's the kind of guy when he comes up with an idea he, like puts his hand over his heart and holds up his other hand like he's quoting shakespeare and and he is just like unbelievable he's like the most inspiring guy he's made me tear up just several times when he starts telling a story or giving a speech like dude's made me cry several times he's he's amazing before we let you go, we talked about this at the beginning of the podcast. You went to war with then Mayor Sarah Palin over a skate park oh, yeah. in Alaska. Yeah. Can, can you summarize that story for, for the yeah. My introduction into politics. So I was very <laughs> punk rock uh, when I was a kid, um, very active in the community, and I was a skateboarder. And I don't know if you've ever been to Alaska, but we don't have a lot of pavement. And so People would always get mad at us. We'd be skating the handrails and the 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 um the stairs of a bunch of local businesses. And so we decided we needed a skate park. So me, along with a couple of my friends and uh and a couple of our parents, we organized a committee. I was president of the committee, and then um a couple other buddies, one original member of Portugal, and uh and the guy who still does our art, Wes Hubbard, was another one of the guys that uh that was on the team. And we started fundraising, going to city council meetings, trying to get a uh, lobbying for a skate park to be built. And so finally I argued with Sarah Palin, who was then our manager for about a year. Finally, I got her to say that like, if we raise a certain amount of money, it was like 60 or $80,000, the city would match it and we get a skate park. And so we did, we did it really fast. My terrible band played terrible shows and we had, we had bake sales, we had car washes. It was really cool because the community all came together, even though they kind of hated us. They were like, you know, we'd skate outside like the ATV store where you buy snow machines and four wheelers and shit. And we'd skate their handrail and they, we went to them and they were like, all right, we're going to donate a four wheeler for raffle, but because we want you to have a skate park. But when you get the skate park, don't skate our goddamn steps anymore. And so we're like, deal. And it was a really funny community based thing. And we raised it super fast. And once we did, we went back to the city and then she said it was no longer in the budget. 
And so I'm a 16 year old kid, like $60,000 from, you know, everybody that bought a cookie um, or a ticket to my terrible show. And uh, so, yeah, just had to argue with her again for about another year. Um, and finally she came around, they were trying to build a new hockey rink or a new beta. I'm like, I loved hockey. I played hockey too, but it was different. It was like hockey was, you know, it was a privilege. Like I could, my like ice time's expensive pads and gear were expensive. And like, my parents worked hard and like they, they bought that stuff and used shit, but they, they got me in there. And, but a lot of kids couldn't skateboarding is one of those things, skateboarding, basketball, boxing, soccer. They're things that like, I really enjoy because you don't need to have, you know, lift tickets in veil or something like that. Like any kid can just like go out and kind of do it. And that's like, and it makes it just fair. It's an even playing field. And so, but yeah, it was one of the proudest things I've ever done was battling her on that. It's still, I think the most public, like the most used public land in Wasilla. Um, very proud of that thing. Wasilla skate park, like taught me a lot of things. That whole, uh, that whole story plays like, uh, it sounds like a, an episode of Letterkenny. Like it's perfectly built for that show. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> well, we thank you for um, joining us today and hanging out with us. And I, and I really do also want to thank you for your continued activism. You do a lot of amazing stuff as a band for um, Native American culture. And yeah, I, especially in the world we live in today, um, mm -hmm. that should never go unnoticed or overlooked so uh not just as a fan of the band but as a fan of your message uh we thank you for thank you you know you got success and you could easily just kind of you know bend buddies with dame lillard and gone down that road of being famous and you decided <laughs> to also be friends with dame lillard but uh you know totally friends with dame lillard. <laughs> and uh yeah name drop name drop right <laughs> yeah, yeah I totally with, got I it. With the collabo when is he gonna rap on one of your records that's the real question dude right? i know we've, we've talked about it a bunch and uh and we're we're working on it he gets like since he's you know an nba star he gets a lot cooler people to uh to feature on and stuff like that but we're working i'm like we're working out some portland and stuff but yeah, no, I'm, I'm proud of it. It's definitely breathed a lot of new life into our band because on that feel it still run, like we got really burnt out. It was a really long, really tiring couple of years. And, um, and so doing this and finding so much meaning and purpose in it. And it's, it's like, it's, it's a thing like I'm, it's different than the causes for one. Like it's not a charity. Like we are just in a straight partnership with a bunch of uh, indigenous organizations and it's um, and so we've been learning a lot and we just want to share that. And also it's um, yeah, man, it's about, it's about doing the right thing and it's basic manners. Like we're on somebody else's land. Like the least you can do is like learn about it and uh, and just respect the people of it. And uh Hopefully, uh, you know, we're working all the, all the goal to uh, get land back. Uh, your website where people can go to learn more, yes? Yeah, uh, ptmfoundation.org. And go there. We got a bunch of fun shit in there. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, we're just trying to make activism take the pretension out of it. You know, you don't got to be smart. You don't got to have money. Any dipshit can do it. Look at me. <laughs> and uh, it's... Uh, yeah, we can all we can all do what we can. And I was like, I think there's a lot of like holier than thou mentality. And I was like, man, like 
that sucks. Like, it's like, let's not, let's not make it harder than it is. Like, dude, just recycle your beer cans and like do the right thing, man. It's not, it's not that difficult. And you can make it as hard as you want it to. You can go all in, but uh, it doesn't have to be that. And it can start like a, a really small step. And uh, that's why just acknowledging the land that you're on and the people of it, I think is a very small step in the least that we can do. Um, and that's, that's just the first step. We got to, we're going to be doing this for a while. Portugal, the man, everybody, new album coming soon. We won't put a date on it or put too much pressure on it, but, uh, you yeah. know, we're all kind of sitting at home looking for things to do. Just saying we could use, <laughs> just saying, just saying <laughs> my mom really likes it. So it's going to be really good. The history of alternative podcast is recorded at the one Oh one WKQX studios in Chicago. Subscribe on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't do drugs. Stay in school. 